Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn together to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. We are taking a short journey through this short book. Jonah is a minor prophet with a major message. It is a small book with a mighty punch. And uh, what we have already seen thus far in the book of Jonah, that the word of the Lord came to the man of God and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So the man of God arose and went the other way. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Uh, That's the last thing in the world he wants to do. He hates these people. He wants them to know God's judgment. So he flees in the opposite direction, and he goes down to Joppa and jumps on the slow boat to Tarshish, as far away as he can get from the presence of the Lord and from the Ninevites as he can get. So here we go. He thinks he's home free, but Jonah's going to learn a lesson about running away from God. Every time you try to run from him, you run into him. (laughs) You can run from God, but you can't hide from God. And as Jonah thinks he is free and clear and on the boat heading to Tarshish, God hurls a great wind and a great storm at that boat. And the sea becomes a tumult, and the ship begins to break apart. And the superstitious, the sailors, the pagan sailors on that ship, they begin throwing cargo overboard. Uh, they're in fear of their lives. They cry out to their gods. They tell Jonah, cry out to your God too. Maybe he can help us. So they begin to cast lots. This is supernatural. This isn't normal. And uh, we're, we're doomed. We've got to figure out what's going on. They cast lots, and God reveals Jonah as the source of the problem. So these sailors, they come to Jonah and say, Jonah, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? What's going on? And he told them, I fear the Lord. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the God of Israel, which is ironic. And uh, he told them that he is fleeing the presence of the Lord, and it's all his fault. And the best thing they can do is throw him overboard. And they, no, we can't do that. That would be immoral and unethical. And so they start digging in with their oars. And they paddle for all they're worth, trying to get back to dry land. But it's to no avail. And finally... They resign themselves. They pray to the Lord God, God, if, if you're doing this, don't kill us because of him and don't hold us accountable for his blood. And they throw Jonah overboard. And the seas calm. And these pagan superstitious sailors feared a great fear. They feared the Lord God, the God of Israel. They feared a great fear and they sacrificed sacrifices and they vowed vows to the Lord. That's where we left it. Last time. So Jonah is thrown overboard, the sea's calm, the sailors are safe, and here we go. So chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, is where we'll begin today. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Well, we'll stop there. That will be our text this morning as we learn a little bit more about this man named Jonah and there's kind of a question that's going to keep popping up and and bothering us all morning and the question is this 
What will it take? (laughs) That's the question that's going to be needling us all morning. What will it take? Well, you have your bulletin. There's a listening guide on the back panel. And we're going to start, first of all, with a divine provision. A divine provision. The book of Jonah is a book of surprises. It is full of twists and turns, unexpected developments. It is surprising. Now, part of our problem is our familiarity with the story. Our familiarity with the book kind of takes away the shock value. And at this point, if you've been in church very long, you've heard the story so many times, or you've read the book so many times, you kind of know the end from the beginning, and you know what's going to happen before it happens. But if you try to read it for the first time, it's a book of surprises. We start with a surprise. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet and says, get up, go to that city and preach against it. And the prophet gets up and goes the other way. (laughs) Wait, that's not supposed to happen. The the prophet, he's going to get up and go do what he's told to do. He's going to do what the word of God says. Not this time. This guy gets up and goes the other way. Wow, didn't see that coming. And then he goes down, he gets in a ship. He thinks he's going to go to Tarsus. And God hurls a great wind and a great storm at that ship, so much so that the ship is in danger of sinking. And uh, man, wow. This just gets, it's getting exciting. Next thing you know, the sailors throw him overboard. Guys, your only hope is to throw me overboard. They throw him overboard and the seas calm. Wow, that, didn't see that coming. That's unexpected. Well, when you get thrown overboard in the middle of a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean, the, what do you expect? You're going to drown. It's certain death. So Jonah expects to drown. The sailors know he's going to drown. You and I, we expect him to drown. That's what happens. You get thrown overboard in the middle of a storm in the sea. You drown. Not this time. A great fish swallows him up. (laughs) Whoa! Didn't see that happening. Well, if you get swallowed up by a great fish, you know what's going to happen now. You're not going to drown. You're probably going to suffocate to death. I mean, you're going to be fish food. (laughs) Fish food turns into fish poop pretty soon. But, I mean, this guy, he's a goner. He got swallowed by a fish. Boom. He's a goner now. Nope. He survives. And three days later, the fish is going to vomit him out. (laughs) Spits him out on dry ground. If you've never heard the story before, holy cow. This is crazy. I've never heard anything like it, unless you've heard it many, many times. It is a book full of surprises. Now, we're not done with the surprises. There are more surprises to come. But, wow. All kinds of unexpected twists and turns and plot developments we didn't see coming. Now, this time, what I want you to see is that this fish, the Lord appointed, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The word appoint or to ordain, there are four of these appointments. This word gets used four times in Jonah. The Lord appoints, ordains this great fish to swallow Jonah. And later on, he's going to appoint a plant And he's going to appoint a worm, and he's going to appoint a wind as well. But he appoints, he ordains this great fish to swallow Jonah. And this time, this fish is a divine provision. It is God's provision to save Jonah's life. Without this fish, Jonah's a dead man. He's going to drown. He sinks to the bottom of the sea, and he's a goner. He's going to to die by drowning. Now this time, God appoints a great fish to swallow him in order to keep him alive, to save his life. So the fish is a divine provision. It's also been called a, a classroom as well. The fish is going to be a real good classroom for Jonah. 
A man named R.T. Kendall said this, the belly of the fish is a lousy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. <laughs> and so Jonah, Jonah's going to go to school, he, whale school, in the, in the belly of a whale or belly of a fish. He's going to learn some things about God. He's going to learn that you can't run from God. He's going to learn that God is merciful. He's also going to learn that God is serious. You don't trifle with God. God is God. So he's got a lot to learn in the belly of this fish. So it's a great classroom, but it's God's provision to save Jonah's life. So we start with this divine provision. But now I want us to focus on this desperate prayer, this desperate prayer. And again, we, we saw last Sunday, you know, the whale, the whole whale part of the story of Jonah, that's really a small part. That's the part we take out and we celebrate in Sunday school and we teach it in kids' lessons and all that. That's a small part of the story of Jonah. It's really not about the whale or the fish, whatever it is. It is about Jonah. It's about God and God's dealings with this knucklehead named Jonah. That's the whole story. Well, let's take a look at this prayer. Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed up by the fish. And then we have the first underwater prayer meeting (laughs) and the first underwater worship service. And most of chapter 2 is this prayer. Now, of course, this, this isn't written in real time. This is written after the fact. As Jonah looks back and tells the story, so he looks back. But we have this desperate prayer, and it seems to come in two phases. We have the prayer of when he is sinking like a rock, and then a prayer that comes later in the belly of the fish. So let's start, first of all, we have this prayer for help. Then Jonah prayed. So the fish swallows him up. He's in the stomach for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of, so from the belly of the fish, he looks back. Hey, you know, before, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol is the abode of the dead. It's the grave. So it's not heaven. It's not hell. In the Old Testament, it's just the place of the dead. So I cried out to you from the belly of Sheol, from the belly of the grave. You heard my voice. So we'll stop there. So verse 2 here describes a cry before he got swallowed by the fish. He's crying out to God. Now if you remember, at the very beginning of the book, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Jonah didn't want to cry out against it. On the ship... When the ship is breaking up and everyone is in fear for their lives, the captain comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, cry out to your God. They're all praying to their gods, a bunch of pagans, different gods. But they come to Jonah and say, hey, you cry out to your God too. Maybe your God will help us. Jonah doesn't cry out to his God then either. So he doesn't cry out at Nineveh. He doesn't cry out to God on the ship. But now when he's sinking, blub, 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 oh, now he's crying out to God. So here's that question. You know, if we could talk to Jonah, Jonah, what is wrong with you, son? What will it take for you to cry out? What will it take for you to cry out to the Lord, your God? Well, now we know the answer. Apparently it takes drowning or the threat of drowning. Imminent death. This is it. His life is flashing before his eyes. This is how it's going to end. And then... Then he cries out to God. Or even in verse 1, then, three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the fish, then Jonah prayed. After all this, that's what it takes to get this man to cry out to God. Good grief. Man, this guy's stubborn. He's a, he's a piece of work, isn't he? 
Part of the punch, we've already established, part of the punch of this little book is that in so many ways and so many times, we are Jonah. We've all played the Jonah game. We've all been here, done that, acted like Jonah at one time or another. And so the question is, you know, this book isn't just about Jonah, it's about us. And the question for you and for me is, well, what will it take? What will it take for you to cry out to God? to break out of your comfort zone or your self-sufficiency or your control fetish? or What will it take for you to cry out to God and say, Oh God, I repent. God, I'm guilty. Forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. To call out on, to Him in salvation or to call out to Him in brokenness. God, I can't. You can. Lord, help me. Or to cry out to God in, in, in obedience. Okay, Lord. The answer is yes. I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do. Or I'll stop. Whatever it is you want me to stop. Or What will it take... For you to cry out to God. What does it take? Well, Jonah cries out to the Lord. Well, that's this phase one of his praying as he calls out to him. And then he reflects from the belly of the fish. This is, this is that underwater prayer meeting. And verses 3 through 9, or really 2 through 9, is a psalm of praise. You know, if you go to the book of Psalms, there are different kinds of psalms, categories, different types, forms of psalms in the book of Psalms. One type of psalm in the book of Psalms is psalms of praise. It's a, it's a whole form. And this follows that form. In fact, there's a lot of the same language. So Jonah may be quoting some of the psalms. He certainly uses some of the same language. He may be quoting some of those psalms. But it is a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, let's take a look at this psalm of praise. So Jonah, in fear of drowning, calls out to God. God, in his mercy, sends this great fish to swallow him up. And after a while, maybe it's a few hours. Maybe it's after a day. Maybe it's two days later, two nights later, three days later. But at some point, Jonah begins to realize, I'm not dead. <laughs> He's been swallowed by a fish, and I'm not dead. Have you ever seen that show, I Shouldn't Be Alive? Jonah could have an episode of, I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be alive. I was cast into the sea. I should have drowned. I've been swallowed by a fish. I should be dead by now. I'm alive. I shouldn't be alive. And, and it dawns on him, God is saving me. God God has saved my life. God's not going to let me die. I shouldn't be alive. And that's the, that's the tone and tenor. That's the context or the framework of this psalm of praise, this first underwater worship service, if you will. So he prays this psalm of praise. Let's take a look at these verses and see what he says. In verse 2, he thanks God for answering his prayer. He cried out for help. God delivered him. And then verse 3, he recognizes, you know what? God is doing this. This is God at work in my life. You cast me into the deep. So it really wasn't the sailors who threw him overboard. God put him overboard. So he recognizes, you know, God is behind all of this. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. The seas belong to the Lord. So here he is underwater, and all those waves and, and rollers up top, the breakers, it's all God's. This is God's ocean. He's the God of the sea, and God put me here. And then he says, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. I've been expelled from your sight, or from before your eyes. Now, you remember... Jonah wanted to be uh, free from the presence of God. He had told us two times back in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. He told us twice in one verse that he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. And then later on he told the sailors, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And now he laments 
not being in the presence of the Lord. I've been expelled from the presence of God. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever wanted something so bad? Man, you just wanted it, and you wanted it, and you had to have it, and then when you finally got it, you didn't want it anymore. (laughs) You found out it wasn't worth wanting, let alone having. Jonah thought he wanted to be free. He wanted to get away from the presence of God, and then when he realizes, you know what, I've, I've been expelled from the presence of God, now he laments it. Oh, no, I want to be in the presence of the Lord. And then the next verse, he says in, in verse 5, However, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, seaweed and kelp and all that. So he's, he's at the brink of death. He almost drowned. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. We talked before about that downward trajectory of disobedience. When you decide to rebel against God and disobey God, life's going to go downhill. And we see this downward trajectory for Jonah. He goes down from Israel to Joppa. Geographically, that's accurate. But he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into a ship. Then he goes down into the hold of the ship. And now he's going down, down, down underwater, blah, 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 down to rock bottom, the bottom of the sea. And he cries out to God. Kind of brings up that question again. Good grief, Jonah. What's it going to take for you to cry out to God? Well, I guess it means hitting rock bottom. When he hits rock bottom, then he cries out to God. What's it going to take for you to cry out to God? I hope you don't have to hit rock bottom to cry out to the Lord. But then when he cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard his prayer and begins to bring him up. So now things have turned around, and God's going to stop that downward trajectory, and he's going to start bringing him up. That's the language that we hear. You've brought up my life from the pit, Oh, Lord, my God. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, this is it. I mean, he's, he's dying. His life flashes before his eyes. I'm fainting away. This is the end. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. When it was all over, when this is it, when I thought I was dying, I remembered the Lord. Now, you see that word, and you hear that language a lot in the Old Testament. When you hear remembering, especially remembering the Lord, remembering His commandments, remembering the Sabbath day, and so forth, remembering God, it's not just a factual recall of information, but it is an active remembrance. It means to focus on something. It is to remember as the basis of action. You remember it and do something about it. That's what it, It's kind of like remembering your anniversary, a little free advice, men, you better remember your anniversary, okay, your wedding anniversary. And I don't just mean be able to recall the date. You remember the date we got married? That, that, no points for that. You better remember it. That is, you buy a card and get some flowers and take her out to dinner and do something nice. You celebrate. You act on remembering. Let me show you something. Hang on to Jonah, and let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So hang on to Jonah. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is just one example. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. God says to his people through Moses, Deuteronomy 8, 18, You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So there's an example of that language. Remember the Lord your God. That is to say you remember him and stay faithful to him. You're his people by covenant. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to make wealth. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, everything I got, I worked for. You know, everything I got, I earned it. I built it. Who gave you the power to earn it and build it? The Lord did. 
Everything you and I have, it comes from the Lord's hand. Anything you give to God, you give from His hand. It came from Him first. The Lord gives you the power to make wealth. Well, you shall remember the Lord your God. Now, what's the opposite of remembering? Forgetting. Forsaking. That's the next verse. Look. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God. That's not just letting Him slip your mind, but to forget is to forsake. You forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. So you remember the Lord or you forget and forsake the Lord. Look at Jonah. When I hit rock bottom, when I was fainting away, when I was dying, when this is it, it's all over, I remembered the Lord. You want to grab this guy by the shoulders and shake him, don't you? Dude. You are one hard-headed knucklehead. What is wrong with you? What will it take for you to remember the Lord? Well, I guess when you're at the moment of death. Goofball. (laughs) What is wrong with this guy? Stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-headed. Remember, this isn't just about Jonah, though. It's about you and me. What will it take for you to remember the Lord? Not just think of him but to act on who he is, to remember the Lord. I hope it doesn't take the brink of death to make you remember the Lord. Now, the brink of death is effective. If if you've been around people who are facing their mortality, who have been told, you know, we've done all we can do, it's just a matter of time, nature's going to take its course, death is imminent. If you've ever been around somebody like that, they'll tell you, man, that has a way of clarifying everything. And all those things that you thought were unimportant before, they become extremely unimportant now. Who cares? And those things that were kind of sort of important become extremely important. It just has a way of clarifying what's really important, what really matters, and your real priorities. Death has a way of crystallizing that. I hope you don't have to face death to remember the Lord and to clarify. Focus the Lord. The most important thing is the Lord. He's what's important. The Lord. Remember the Lord. Well, let's keep going. He said, I, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now, that's a strange verse. Hard to interpret as well. It could be taken a couple of ways. He could be saying that those who regard vain idols, empty nothings, those who worship empty idols will forsake their faithfulness. In other words, when you worship an empty nothing, one day you're going to be in an hour of need and you're going to cry out to your empty nothing and you're going to find out it's empty and it's nothing. And you'll chunk it. You'll realize it for the false god that it is, as useless and and impotent as it is. Maybe that's the idea. Empty nothings are really empty nothing, false gods. Now, keep in mind, idolatry isn't always just a little statue that you might worship or some false god. We got lots of idols today. We talked about American Idol a while back. We got all kinds of idols today. When you base your life on an empty nothing, you're going to find out it can't save you in the day you need saving. Or it could be rendered that those who worship empty nothings, vain idols, forsake the Lord's faithfulness. It could be understood that way as well. The Bible tells us the Lord your God is a jealous God. And God will not share his devotion and his worship, his he, he, he will not share his worship with any other God. He's a jealous God. And if you, God says, hey, it's him or me. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're married, that's, that's, the, that's the line you draw on the sand, isn't it? If someone is 
thinking about adultery or committing adultery, him or me, her or me. You're not going to have it both ways. It's one or the other. God says that. God compares idolatry to spiritual adultery, him or me. You can have that God or you can have this God, but you're not going to have both. I don't play that way. No. And those who choose empty nothings forsake the Lord and his faithfulness. Maybe that's what this verse is saying. Anyway, it kind of seems out of place. Odd verse. We'll come back to it. And then verse 9, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. I don't know about those pagans out there worshiping empty nothings, but I'm going to church. (laughs) When I get out of here, I'm going to the Lord's house, and I'm going to sacrifice sacrifices, and I'm going to vow vows, and I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to church. Big promises. Have you ever made promises like that? Man, you get in a jam, you get in a pickle, and you start bargaining with God. Well, God, listen, if you'll get me out of this, I'll start doing this and this and this. I mean, I'll start going to church, and I'll start giving, and I'll stop drinking, and I'll stop doing this, and I'll start that. And I'll, God, if you'll just help me. That's kind of like Jonah. Here he is. He's, whew, you get me out of the belly of this fish, and I'm going to church, and I'm going to start vowing vows and praising praises. And he sounds like the sailors in chapter 1. These pagan fa- sailors... When they saw the seas get calm after they throw Jonah overboard, they feared the Lord. Remember that? They don't know the Lord, but they feared a great fear, and they sacrificed sacrifices, and they vowed vows to the Lord. Jonah's kind of there. And then at the end of verse 9, we have this great statement, salvation is from the Lord. You ought to underline that. Wow, that's a, that'll preach. Salvation is from the Lord. That's kind of like the literary center of this book. That's kind of a... A kernel, that's almost a, the, a thematic verse. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, in this context, in the Old Testament, salvation is about deliverance. That's the idea. It's not about eternal salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sin. Here in this setting, salvation is from the Lord. It's, it's deliverance. God has delivered the sailors. Chapter 1, they threw Jonah overboard and the seas were calm. Sailors are okay. God is going to deliver Jonah... He got swallowed up by a whale, the, 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 the fish whale. The fish saved his life from drowning. Now he's going to spin him out on dry land. So God's going to deliver Jonah. And then we're going to see later on God's going to deliver the Ninevites from imminent judgment. Salvation is from the Lord. But now we're New Testament Christians and we have the revelation of the New Testament. And we can read this in a lot of the New Testament. And now we understand even better Salvation is from the Lord. Not just deliverance from a crisis, but salvation itself, eternal salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, a right relationship with God, having heaven as your home. Salvation is from the Lord. It doesn't come from a man. It doesn't come from a preacher or a pope or a priest. It doesn't come from a church or a denomination. It doesn't come from a rite or a ritual. It doesn't come from a creed or a code. Salvation is from the Lord. The only way you could ever be saved is for the Lord to save you. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only Savior. He's our only hope. He's the only one that can save us. So you come to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again as we talked about in baptism. He's alive today. He offers you the gift of eternal life. You repent of your sins, put your faith in Him, asking and believing Him to forgive you and to save you and to change you. That's how and when you are saved. Salvation is from the Lord. That'll preach, won't it? Good job, Jonah. So far, so good. 
And then, in verse 10, the Lord commanded uh, commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So now we have a delivered prophet. So we had a divine provision. The great fish is God's provision to save Jonah's life from drowning. We have this desperate prayer. So we have this cry for help and then a psalm of praise. And then we have a delivered prophet. Again, this is another one of those twists and turns. God commanded the fish. This is all the Lord. God did this. Here's a little interesting piece about the book of Jonah. Everyone and everything in the book of Jonah obeys God, except Jonah. (laughs) The wind obeys God. The seas obey God. The fish obeys God. Later on, there's a worm and a plant that obey God. The sailors obey God. The Ninevites obey God. The only, only one disobedient in the book of Jonah is Jonah himself. What a knucklehead. Again, you just want to shake him a little bit. What is wrong with you? Well, Jonah, he gets vomited out by the fish. I wish I could make that sound better, but that's what it says. <laughs> he gets spit out on dry land. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. I just wonder, I suspect, I hope he landed back at Joppa. Wouldn't that be perfect? That would just be, that'd be perfect. I don't know if that's how it played out, but if the, if the fish spit him right back on the beach of Joppa, here we go. Now, let's try this again. That's chapter 3. But anyway... The Lord commanded the fish. The fish obeyed. The fish has had a belly full of Jonah. He's got a stomachache. And he vomits Jonah up onto dry ground. What we hear in this psalm, this psalm of praise, again, it's a psalm of praise, just like it came out of the book of Psalms. What we hear in this psalm of praise is gratitude. Jonah is happy to be alive. He is grateful for God's mercy. This is the happiest part of the book. Jonah, I mean, he's out on the beach and he is skipping and dancing. He is hooting and hallelujah. I mean, he is, he's ecstatic. He is glad to be alive. Here's another twist plot, though, another plot twist. He's not changed. He's still Jonah. Now, you would think, after all that he's been through, after the storm, after being thrown over sea, after almost certain death by drowning, being swallowed up by a fish, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, being vomited out on dry ground, you would expect there's going to be a new Jonah in town. This guy's learned some hard lessons. You talk about the school of hard knocks. Man, this guy graduated. Woo! He's going to be different. He's going to be softer. He's going to be broken. He's going to be humbled. We're going to have a new Jonah, but we're going to find out. No, we've got the same old Jonah. He just stinks now. <laughs> You've got seaweed in his hair, and his skin may be bleached white, and he smells like fish guts. He's, he stinks, but it's the same Jonah. He's unchanged. He is unrepentant. There's not a hint of repentance. All we get is gratitude. I'm so glad God saved my life. He's glad to be alive, but he hasn't changed And in the next, I mean, spoiler alert, in the next chapter, he's going to go to Nineveh, and he'll preach in Nineveh, but he ain't happy about it. And and he'll preach God's word, but it's half-hearted. And then when the people repent and God has mercy on the Ninevites, he's going to have a little pity party and a temper tantrum. Jonah hasn't changed at all. Again, you want to grab him by the shoulders and shake him. What will it take, dude, for you to change, for you to soften? What will it take? Well, apparently this isn't even enough for Jonah. And then again, this isn't just about Jonah, is it? It's about you and me. So there's a question for us. 
What will it take for you to change? What will it take for you to think differently, to act differently? Here's what psychologists tell us. For all of us, the greatest, most effective impetus for change is pain. That's what gets our attention. That's usually what it takes for us to change, to change direction, to change our behaviors. It takes some kind of pain. We like to think, if I get all the information, I can make a rational, reasonable, logical, and informed decision. You just tell me what I need to know, and if I have all the facts, give me the risks and the rewards, the pros and the cons, give me the consequences, tell me, tell me what's what, and with I weigh all that information... I'll make the appropriate decision and I'll start doing this and I'll stop doing that and I'll make sure I take care of this. And, and we think, we like to think that we'll make rational decisions. We don't. We know we ought to, but we don't. We know we shouldn't, but we do until pain stops us. Until the doctor says, if you don't stop this, you're going to have this problem. You don't want this problem. Oh, I guess I better stop it then finally. Until the doctor says, this is going to kill you. And I'm not joking. You'll be dead if you don't stop, if you don't change, if you don't turn this around. Or when your spouse says, if you don't change, I'm out. This is it. Oh, now I guess I'll change. When something, it usually takes something that drastic, that scary, that painful to really motivate us to change. Oh, goodness gracious. Don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. What will it take? for you to do what you know you ought to do or to stop doing what you know you shouldn't be doing. Here's part of Jonah's problem. Jonah is self-centered. Jonah is self-centered. Even in this prayer of praise, this psalm of praise, listen. In verse 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried from the depth of soul. You heard my voice. Um, he says, the current engulfed me. Oh, you cast me into the deep. The current engulfed me. The breakers passed over me. I said, I've been expelled. I will look again. You get it? I, me, and my. I think it's like 11 times he says I, and another six or seven me's, and another six or seven my's. I, me, my, I, me, my. Jonah is self-centered. It's all about Jonah. The self-centered life is a miserable life. Boy, in Jonah, a party. Wouldn't you love to spend an afternoon with Jonah? No, you wouldn't. Because you've spent time with people like Jonah, where it's the me channel all the day, all day, every day. Everything's me, me, me. Where people are just self-absorbed and they want you to be, be absorbed with them too. Uh, it's just the me channel all day, all, every day. It's exhausting and it's not fun and it's not entertaining. These are miserable people. The self-centered life is a miserable, empty life. And this is part of Jonah's problem. He is self-centered. It's, it's just all me and my. Again, this isn't just about Jonah, though. It's about you and me. And if we're not ever vigilant, we become self-centered, too. We face that same temptation. We have to die to self every day. What's the antidote to a self-centered life? I'm glad you asked. The self-centered, the antidote for a self-centered life is a Christ-centered life. That's the antidote. The formula for a miserable self-centered life is I, me, and my. The prescription for a Christ-centered life is that you die to self and Christ lives in you. 
Galatians 2.20 is the perfect prescription, perfect verse that describes it. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. There you go. There's a death that is reckoned. I'm a dead man. I'm a walking dead man. I have died. Paul says in Colossians 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a death that needs to be reckoned. I have died. Baptism was a picture of that. I've died and I've been buried and now I'm raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. There's a death that is reckoned. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, a death that is reckoned. I'm a walking dead man. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's not a one-time decision that you just, you know, you're in a church service one day and you hear a sermon one day and maybe you go to the altar one day and you say, okay, I've died to self, good, all done. <laughs> no, this is a daily decision, a daily commitment. It's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. You die to self, you live to Christ. You reckon yourself dead to sin, self in the world and alive in Christ Jesus. That's the antidote to a self-centered life. So the question is, what will it take for you to die to self-centeredness? Jonah hasn't gotten there yet. What will it take for you and for me to die to self-centeredness and to live a Christ-centered life? Jonah is also self-righteous. Here's another part of his problem. He is self-centered and he's self-righteous. Let's go back to that weird verse. In verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, my prayer came to you in your holy temple... Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving the vows which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. That verse 8 just kind of, what? Where'd that come from? You know, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to church. Not like those people who worship empty idols. Is that a jab at the sailors who threw him overboard? Is that a jab at the Ninevites where God's making him to go preach? Is it, why is that in there? It reminds me of the Pharisees in the New Testament. And in Luke 18, we won't read it for sake of time, but in Luke 18, Jesus is dealing with these self-righteous Pharisees, these professional religious people who look down their noses at everyone else. They're just so much better. They're religiously observant and more religiously observant than all these sinners that they're surrounded by, and they're just self-righteous in their religion. And so Jesus says, hey, let me tell you about a couple of guys. Let me tell you a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray one day. And one man was a Pharisee, this professionally religious person. And he went up to the temple and he prayed, Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like these sinners. <laughs> I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector over here. I tithe and I fast and I do all this religious thing. God, I thank you. I'm such a good person and I'm not like that sinner. The sinner, the tax collector, he won't even look up to the Lord and he beats his chest and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of those men went home right with God. Which one do you think it was? It was the penitent sinner. The one who said, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The self-righteous guy, he went home not right with God. Kind of the same language, the same tone. What will it take for Jonah to get a glimpse into the heart of God? Why does God want Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites? God is a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. Their wickedness has come up before him, and God has singled them out for particular judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. God's ready to cook the city. But in his mercy, he wants to send his prophet, go warn them, and give them an opportunity to repent. That's the heart of God. That's, that's the message of Jonah. 
Listen for the heart of God. It's not about a fish. It's about the heart of God. Jonah doesn't get that. And here's Jonah, who is fresh on the beach, having just experienced God's mercy. He deserves death. He should have drowned. He should have died in the fish's belly. But here he is on dry ground, and he's tickled to death. God saved his life. Thank God for his grace and mercy toward me. But the same one who is still basking in the mercy of God wants to withhold that mercy from other people whom God wants to show mercy to. That's messed up. You want to grab him by the shoulders and go, Jonah, what will it take? You're not listening. God wants to have mercy on those people just like he had mercy on you. What will it take for you and me to get a glimpse of the heart of God? The Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God wants to show mercy to people. He wants to save people. That's the heart of God. And if we're not careful, we'll be like Jonah. We'll look down our noses. Those people aren't like us. Those folks aren't as good as us. Those folks don't think like we think or whatever it is. And we, and we want to withhold God's mercy from people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will it take for us to hear the heart of God, to preach the gospel to every creature? Well, we need to hurry up. We're, we're, we're done. We've got to stop. Let me show you real quick. Let's jump over to the New Testament as we finish. Super fast. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus draws a parallel between Jonah and himself. And Matthew chapter 12, it's a double parallel. Matthew 12, verse 38, Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he says, you know, y'all wanting signs. Here's the only sign you're going to get, the sign of Jonah. And in this case, the sign of Jonah is that Jonah spent three days in the, in the belly of the grave, Sheol, the place of death, Three days and nights in the belly of the grave, and God brought him out alive. The place of death became a place of life. So we have a similar resurrection. In biblical hermeneutics, this is called typology. A type, what that means is that there's a person, place, event, or a thing in the Old Testament that is a type, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of a person, place, or event, or a thing in the New Testament. That's the antitype. Think about Passover, you know, the whole Passover thing. Passover, Passover was its own thing, Passover. But we understand from the New Testament that Passover is a type of Christ, not a kind of Christ, a type, a picture, a nonverbal prophecy of Christ. In fact, Paul will say in the New Testament, Christ is our Passover. So here Jonah now becomes a type of, of Christ, a nonverbal prophecy. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, a place of death, but instead of dying, God brought him out of the place of death. And he said, and Jesus is predicting it's going to be like that. The Son of Man is going to spend three days and nights in the belly of the earth, a place of death. Now, Jewish inclusive numbering and all that, but he's going to spend three days, three nights in the belly of 
the earth, the place of death, but he's going to be brought out alive. Now, Jonah never died. He just brought, he was brought out of where he should have died. Jesus Christ died and God brought him to life. But then there's a double parallel. There's also a, a similar message. In verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah, spoiler alert, Jonah ends up in Nineveh and he preaches this terse, half-hearted message, repent, and the whole city repents. Repent, you know, turn or burn, <laughs> repent or else, and the whole city repents. Jesus, preach, Jesus preaches the same message. You know that? Jesus says, repent. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is kind of an unpopular word these days, but it's a Bible word. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Repent. And Jesus said, you know what? The men of Nineveh will stand in judgment of this wicked generation that stands in front of me. This pagan city repented at the preaching of Jonah, and yet here I stand, the Son of God, standing in front of God's own people, these Pharisees, and they don't repent. Jesus preaches the same message. God is declaring to all men everywhere, repent. The question is, what will it take for you to repent? to repent and believe the gospel. Well, we got to stop. Man, this Jonah's a piece of work, isn't he? Woo, poor man. Stubborn, hard-headed, knucklehead. I don't know what other words you want to come up for him. Just a goofball. You want to shake him by the shoulders and say, Dude, what is your problem? What are you thinking? What will it take? But again, it's not just Jonah, is it? We've all, we're a little bit, little bit of Jonah in all of us. We've all been here, done that. And I just wonder if God would like to take me by the shoulders and take you by the shoulders and shake us a little bit. What will it take? What will it take for you to repent, to cry out to God for salvation? What will it take for you to repent and call out to God in confession, to, to stop doing what you shouldn't be doing, to start doing what you should be doing? What will it take for you to change? What will it take for you to hear the heart of God and share the love of God with others? What will it take? Today's a great day not to be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. <laughs> Learn from Jonah and don't be like him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving for us your dealings with this knucklehead named Jonah. And Lord, we're all, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. We're more like him than we want to admit in public. God, I pray that you just seal this message to our hearts. Have full sway in our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.